Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Ruler is the world's finest magazine of cycling and cycling culture. Established in 2006, Ruler interviews the world's biggest cycling names and covers the world's biggest cycling races. Visit our website at ruler.cc and subscribe to support our in-depth features, long reads, independent journalism, stunning photography and immersive cycling coverage. I'm Edward Pickering, I'm the editor of Ruler and this is Ruler Conversations. Got a two-part pod for you today. Dan Cavallari is going to interview Luca Ciano, the director of product at Cask, and Marco Galli, marketing manager for Cask. They're going to talk about the new Cask Elemento helmet. But before that, we're going to run an interview I did with Ryan Legarek. Ryan is the writer, photographer, and filmmaker who created the piece Crossing the Divide, which appears in the latest edition of Ruler. It's an absolutely fascinating interview. Ryan spoke really well about the process of doing a bikepacking trip and then working out how to commit it to paper in the form of words and pictures in a way that best reflected his experience. The latest edition of Ruler, number 119, is the sole edition, and it's it's actually out now. It's a magazine that goes deep into our motivations for riding and what it all means to us. When we're putting together a magazine, you know, the, it's quite a long process, and the, the ideas come in sometimes six months or a year before they actually go in the magazine. We get pitches from writers and photographers. We have ideas within the office. There are certain commercial features which need to go in. And slowly we put together a features list which has a lot of variety, depth, a lot of different subjects and different treatments and different styles. And once we've got that featured list, we rejig the order, the words and pictures come in, we do the layout, we rejig it some more. And slowly and sometimes painfully, but always in a worthwhile way, the final magazine emerges like a butterfly from a chrysalis. So we've been turning our attention to bikepacking in the last few years. And one of the pitches that came in towards the end of last year, I think, was from Ryan Legarrick, filmmaker and photographer. He told me about a trip he was taking from his home near Lisbon in Portugal to the Atlas Mountains in North Africa. He was offering words and pictures. And that was interesting because he was doing this as a solo trip. And doing a solo bikepacking trip, I think we all know, whether it's a short ride or a fully-fledged months-long expedition. It's a very different experience from travelling with others, and that is for better and for worse. So Ryan did the trip. He sent me the piece he'd written along with the pictures, and I immediately knew it was going to fit in the Soul magazine. We worked together pretty intensively on the edit. The headline was Crossing the Divide. This piece, I feel, conveys the theme and story of the magazine. Such an interesting piece. So to briefly describe what's unusual about it, and why it caught my attention, and why I think it's so fascinating. Ryan's a filmmaker. He cut up the order of the ride so that it wasn't a straight narrative starting at the beginning and ending at the end. The narrative then became a series of impressions and sensations, and Ryan was very honest about the highs and the lows, and the cutting and jumping around was offset by some really stark and harsh black-and-white photography, where Morocco looks pretty austere are beautiful at the same time, but also quite harsh. It's a fantastic feature, and I feel it got to the heart not just of what happens to somebody on a long bike ride, but of how somebody feels on a long bike ride. And don't we all ride our bikes for the feeling? So before I catch up with Ryan, 
we're going to listen to the first few paragraphs of the piece, which Ryan has kindly read himself. In December 2022, my friend Josh texted me about spending New Year's Eve together in Marrakesh, ahead of riding in the Atlas Mountains. He had been there recently for a race, and he was eager to discover the country at a more reasonable pace. Morocco is not that far from where I live, just above Lisbon, Portugal. It's actually closer than Madrid, for instance. I made the decision in a blink. I needed some time to escape the diluvial rains we were getting on the Portuguese coast over winter. Lisbon felt like it was underwater. I crossed a good part of Andalusia on my bike from the border of Spain to Tarifa. Then over there I took a ferry to Tangier, where I jumped on a bus to get to Marrakech just in time for the New Year's Eve. The plan was to ride two days together, and then we'd go out on our own trips before meeting again for a dinner at some point. Josh had set me a route in the mountain, but after that my plan was always to get lost on my way back up north, slowly heading back in the direction of home. After about two weeks on the road, with a whole bunch of long rides and a sense of solitude, you might get quite tired physically, and therefore you might become more fragile and susceptible to intensified emotions. Morocco looks like a postcard from Mars on our cycling feeds. But the Morocco I explored was and always beautiful. Morocco is a country of mountains and plains, but also dusty-looking poverty and pipe trash around the bigger towns. Sometimes you get a feeling of hopelessness from the desolate, flat landscapes. Most travelers are about the journey, but this one will be a bit different. It's a shuffle logbook of my memories on the road. Ryan, thank you very much for coming on to Rulo Conversations. No, thank you. Thank you very much. Before we talk about the peace and your bikepacking expedition to Morocco, tell us a bit about your background in both life and cycling. In life, I guess I wanted to make films, photography from a very uh, early age. My dad is a war reporter. My mum was a news producer. There was always sort of a, the dream to be able to use uh, those tools. And I was awfully bad at it. My dad used to tell me that I was wasting film. I was also very stubborn, so I kept at it, and I, and I did everything you have to do normally to get into the business. I did it awfully badly also, <laughs> and uh, eventually I got into, uh, into theaters and music and then television. And then one day I made a, a portrait of a bike messenger, and I became myself a bike messenger on the side, and I fell in love with cycling, and that was the start of... Oh, actually, that was the end of one phase in my life and the start of a new phase, which involved basically doing anything I could to spend as much time as possible on two wheels. When was this? This is 2009, I think, um, or 2010. And you told me before we started recording, you've got quite a cosmopolitan background, but you ended up kind of settling in, in Brussels for a fair amount of time. Yeah, when I was like 19, I think, I fell in love with a, with a dancer and she was moving to Brussels and I just followed. And so there's, there aren't many better places than Brussels to get into cycling, I guess. Well, I think Brussels is probably one of the worst, to be honest, but everything around it is just amazing. Like cycling in winter in Flanders through the foggy mornings of those cobbled streets and bergs, it's just, it's just like cycling with like legendary ghosts of the core history of what's beautiful about cycling in terms of uh, racing and uh, that was really inspiring to me I, I discovered this world through the eyes of uh, a fellow messenger who was himself a really keen cyclist obviously he had almost been a pro but he was not interested in competition 
And so I really got into cycling through this kind of poetic, foggy landscapes of Flanders. And uh, I think it's a, it's a, it's an amazing place to learn the harshness of cycling in winter. Well, you guys know that very well in the UK too. Um, and it made me very easy to uh, convince on any trip down south on a bike. And now you live in Portugal near Lisbon. Yeah, yeah, I got pretty much convinced by that too. Uh, we moved to uh, to Portugal, and uh, I cycle a lot around, mostly in Spain at the moment. What is it about cycling that has grabbed you? Hmm. Well, um, there's there's many things. I think at first it was redefining the the city in terms of commuting as a bike messenger. You learn so much about the town you live in. You discover it way more. And like when I went back to Paris, for instance, I I took my my fixie and everything changed about the city. Suddenly you're not commuting in transport and you're just enjoying golden hours, neighborhoods that you've barely ever crossed. And so that was the first thing. Then I think it it quickly became something about um, long distance cycling and crossing borders. And you wake up one day and you're on the transcontinental in Italy, in a place where you'd have taken a Ryanair flight and um, sort of went through all this stress and it just took you a week on your bike. And there's a feeling of being incredibly small, but at the same time managing distances and your size in the space better. I think there's something extremely liberating and, and, and poetic about how it affects uh, time and space and it, it just changes everything. And then obviously you enter um, this meditative state, which is very hard to, to compare to anything else, I think. And for me, it's the only way I know um, to meditate properly and to, to really drift into my own self and to rediscover that. What was your idea behind the trip to Morocco that you've written about in Crossing the Divide? The whole idea was to get lost. It was really like something I had even written down. I felt lost already when I was leaving in terms of private and personal life. And I wanted to find myself. And I knew that the best way to do that was probably to get lost. And I knew that going through um, North Africa was very easily, how to say, muted by all the, um, the easy tourist access and all the polished areas. I just wanted to get lost. I wanted to meet a friend that I usually only meet for work. I wanted to spend two days with him and then just get lost on the way back outside of the Atlas Mountains. And that's exactly what I did. As I said before, the narrative is not a linear one. You broke up the story into impressions and the order is not temporal. The order is impressionistic, which really drew me to the story. And in the piece, you started and ended on day 14. And those two bits of writing centre around your encounter on a bus with a boy from Guinea called Omar. And your conversations with him really seem to leave an imprint on you. Yeah. The anachronisms or the disrupted chronology is something I have often uh, done in films of my own tours. I think we remember those trips like a broken, exploding mirror where only the big pieces uh, that make the biggest sense are going to actually come on focus. And I really wanted to uh, to do that in the writing because for me the the whole trip was centered around Uma. Uma was the the point where everything made sense. Uma was definitely uh, the most important event on this trip, and probably the one that I had not knowingly come to find. 
And I think it, it just defined to me uh, this whole experience. It was a shock. It's, it, there's a massive difference between hearing about migrants, reading their stories or seeing pictures and sitting next to one for like a few hours at night in a bus and just making friends. It's a shocking proximity with reality. I don't think I've ever encountered that kind of immersion into another reality. And it's very, very soft. I mean, I, 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 I didn't spend a week with him. I didn't go through anything. But the way he shared it with me really shocked me because nothing was as bad as it sounds in his tone. I remember him saying, yeah, it's just complicated. And the word complicated for me was like, it's just, you mean hell, you know, in my head, I was like, this is not complicated. This is hell to me. And so the whole bike tour kind of disappeared. But at the same time, there was this parallel between my traveling and his traveling that was really shocking to me. I was there with my dirty clothes and my fancy bike and my camera and I had access to anything I wanted. And he was really like taking two years to do something I had done on my bike in a week with all access. It was, yeah, it was a confrontation that I certainly wasn't ready for. And especially at this state of the trip where I was already drained physically, when you ride so much and you spend so much time on your own riding the bike, you become really naked to, uh, to emotions. You're very, very exposed. You, um, I like the expression skinned alive, almost like everything gets through you. So I had already started to see uh, things that were like disturbing me, but this was like, this, this was going directly to the heart. And I guess, yeah, you know, he's working his way up through Morocco and I guess aiming to get to Europe. Exactly. He left three years ago from Guinea. He's been uh, crossing the desert, literally. He's been shot at. He has been now in Morocco for, I think, two years and a half. He's been moving towns. He, he was explaining me they go slowly towards the north. They stop quite often to work and save money. And they work in horrible conditions on construction sites where they're actually living in tents. And slowly they go up north. And his dream is to finally get to Europe and show um, show his uh, his talent for football. He's extremely good in, in, in football and, and he manages to train and play at the same time as he does this trip. There are three main settings for your piece in the magazine. There are the, there are the cities and your encounters with the people who live there. There's also the empty space of the desert and then the high mountains, the Atlas Mountains. And in the writing, there's a difference in mood between all these places. In the desert, you seemed a little pessimistic and maybe challenged by the loneliness. And in the mountains, it was as if your soul was singing, as if you were flying. Um, tell us about the two landscapes and how they affected your mood. Yeah, the flatlands were, were really harsh and, and their harshness came with a massive contrast after the mountains. The mountains bear that simplicity of life. Everything is muted in a way. There's an incredible silence in the Atlas Mountains. There's, a, there's an incredible peace in the sound of the wind even and then in the sound of the villages who have like a bit of running water. There is poverty, but it's a poetic poverty. It almost looks like a sort of minimalism and people don't seem to suffer. They seem to just live a, a, a bit of a harsher life, but also a, a simpler life. 
And most of the people I've met were happy to live where they live. They, they loved it. They loved the, the area. It was really interesting. They were also very grateful uh, in a way that I was discovering it by back. They, they often uh, congratulated me on that and said that to them it made way more sense. And I could understand it when I passed some areas that are a bit more touristic in the mountains where you see like lines and lines of SUVs crossing <laughs> villages at the speed of light and people snapping pictures inside. And you're like, wow, that's that's an interesting way to miss the point here. Because the, the air is fresh, the people are shining, and the silence is like a lullaby. And, and you just, you, your brain just goes in, for me at least, and with the riding and, and the climbing and the beautiful landscape, you just find this immense serenity that invades your head. <laughs> and then... You can go, and being a cyclist, you obviously know that you take a time to get in the mountains, but it takes no time to get out of the mountains. It's like one call, and then you go down, and boom, suddenly you're just out of the mountains. This, this huge, immense heaven just flashed and disappeared. And it's almost like you just dreamed it. And then you enter the part of my trip where I'm getting lost on purpose, and I'm actually getting to like small halfly finished cities, post-industrial. It feels like broken dreams all around. People who, who don't look like they're enjoying at all where they live. Understandably, it's basically a city in the middle of a desert that is like looking like a, a pile of garbage bins. Hope just seems to fade away really quickly. And yeah, that was that was very different. There was still a lot of beauty. There were still people that were like, I, I, I remember uh, my first uh, encounter with a migrant or a refugee or was this beautiful black man riding his bike and singing. And I, 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 I didn't see him at first. I just heard him and he was coming from the other side and I could just hear this singing. And, and, and then I saw him and he was like, he, he was incredibly uh, beautiful. And he was on this bike that had absolutely no brakes. Like the brakes were just like cables. Everything was gone. He was riding on the spindles of the pedals, like the, the axles. Like there was no, no, no more pedals anymore. And I, I was just blown away. Uh, there were those moments of beauty, but at the same time, misery was just around the corner, ready to like jump at you and, and show herself in a cruel way, just like that. You know, this kid was singing. He was beautiful. And then I noticed the bike and then I understood where he was coming from because we stopped at the same little uh, shop on the side of the road and I noticed he was speaking in French to the to the guy and the guy was actually answering in Arabic and there was like this obvious racism it went from his beautiful singing to this harsh reality and the flatlands were like like this all the time like I I'm reaching Casablanca and, and I think oh Casablanca it's going to be beautiful it's going to be gorgeous oh that's going to be a, a little bit of a rest from all this and the suburbs of Casablanca are like, really, I, I've, I've been to Africa. I've been to many countries in Africa. I have never seen that poverty. I don't understand how this can happen. It's, uh, it was really, really surprising. Around Casablanca, you're like basically in slums, you know? And then you get to like the coast and it's really hard to access the beach because it's basically only hotels and, and villas. You, you don't really find an easy access to the beach. And there you understand, like, really the level of differences between classes. And, yeah, it was just shocking. Yeah, it's something you don't notice when you go on holiday somewhere or if you're driving through. When you cycle through a country, you, you see and experience all of it, both the good side and the challenging side. 
Yeah, I think uh, I think cycling is definitely a, an amazing way to to discover a country. It's an amazing way to enjoy it. It's an amazing way to feel it, and it's also a way to expose yourself to it uh, for better or for worse. Plus, physically, how was the ride? Because that's one aspect of your journey you didn't really write much about because you were very much about the the emotions and the impressions. Did the physical experience of cycling affect your mental and emotional experience? Yeah, it was at a touring pace, but like a quite consistent touring pace where like the the biggest day would be maybe not more than 170 and then the smallest day would be something like 80 kilometers and then I took a rest day in the middle so it was consistent riding but it was not an ultra Uh, so I, I, I could deal with that theoretically then I had a few tricks on how to um, avoid doing long uh, stretching uh, phases or yoga. Like I, I, I used flat pedals because I knew that my knees would be intact. And I rode at a really, really, uh, I think you, you would call it zone 0.5. <laughs> Basically, you're just turning those things and, and you just let them go. And then you climb the mountains, but you take your time and... and, and you enjoy more than you suffer. So it it just came slowly at the, the, the tiredness and the erosion of the body and, and, and the mood came really slowly. And it's funny, I in, in the film I say this, the funny thing about rest days is that you only realize how tired you are on a rest day. Like as long as you're moving, you feel sort of fine. And it's usually when you're exposed to other humans or... Uh, administrations or like if, if if on a trip you have to take a train and you're tired this can be really stressful this can get hectic because you're so dependent on nothing else than your own will and your own power that 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 you have this like notion of and that's probably one of the things i love the most about this is this notion of total control on what's happening you're riding your bike you're going from point A to point B, you have to wax your chain, you have to put some air in your tires, you have to mind your mechanics on your own, you have to feed yourself, you have to hydrate, and that's about it. Then everything else is under control. But when you lose this control, or when the trip starts taking a toll on a different way, which was getting lost and getting confronted to other things, then you realize how tired you are and how much tiredness affects your brain. is it, it, It's crazy. I knew it from long distance uh, races where you start like seeing dinosaurs and mermaids at night in, in, in trees. In touring, it's, it's something that can be easily avoided if you tour at a more leisurely pace of like, I'd say 50 to 100k per day. But as soon as you start like going a bit over that and then going through the mountains, the brain gets tired. And when the brain gets tired, it's so easy to... Uh, not to lose your mind that's a big term but to yeah lose a way to see reality with a positive mindset and that you lose it really really quickly and the photography that you sent was it's very black and white very harsh lines with the, and very contrasty you know there, there were dark darks and bright lights which i loved i remember my art editor saw the pictures first before he'd read the words and said for oh, the these pictures they're a bit hard and i said don't worry, they they work with the once you read the words, they'll work with it. So the black and white pics were fantastic, and I love the way they work with words. But it was also a serendipitous accident, wasn't it? Yeah. Well, I do I do a lot of black and white picture. There's not many pictures of mine exposed in my house because my wife thinks they're too dark. <laughs> so I, yeah, your guy is making a lot of sense. <laughs> I'm working on that. It's a, it's an issue. What happened is like like um, my camera fell in a hotel in Marrakesh. My camera fell from the bike many times in my life. Nothing ever happened to it. But on that small fall, 
it just started acting up. And then all the settings were constantly moving when I was like filming or taking pictures. It would go from 400 ASA to 300, uh, uh, 3,600. Like crazy things were changing. The, the, it, the picture profile, like I have all those like custom profiles that they were just jumping between each other. So it was like faded colors to harsh contrasted black and white to like another color setup. I was just going mad and I, and I took the camera and I banged it. Uh, on the back another big time like with my elbow and everything stopped it just stopped completely turning around it was just black and white and it was on this custom profile that is like super contrasted that I had used already during the trip but that I, I didn't plan to be um, stuck with it in the mountains where like those beautiful colors just mix so harmoniously and contrast with the sky I remember hearing this old lady uh, saying in French that, that she had never seen such a blue sky in her life. And, and I was really pissed off when she said that because I was like, well, I, I'm not seeing it anymore and I wish I was colorblind because my camera is. But at the same time, it's true that um, I've, I've noticed that limitations in, in creative works are a blessing. They force you to see things in a different way. They force you to adapt and they force you to have a voice in a way. If you're stuck with only one lens, you will be moving around your subject more. Like if you have a wide angle, you have to get closer. I had a camera, I was working for TV and I had a camera that wouldn't focus anywhere else than 30 centimeters away from the lens. I mean, it should have been a nightmare. And I just like, I just had the most fun that day uh, filming. I had to move around so much. I have to find ways to make the same shot from afar and have something that was in focus so I could make that shot without it looking just blurry. And the same thing happened with this. I had just the black and white. I had just a harsh contrast. And it sort of made sense because it showed things in a way that was like um, oniric, in a way that was like almost like a dream. And this setup sort of deletes a lot of details in a picture. So it's actually a great setup if you're bad at making pictures because you don't have to frame so hard. You don't have to work so much on the composition. It does it for you because it deletes so many things. It can be disturbing with portraits. You can lose the eyes of people if they're slightly against light. But in that case, it just helped me to show the landscapes, the way I was living through them and the way they were affecting me, especially in the second part of the trip. I wouldn't have made it better with colors. Colors would have been a distraction. A lighter contrast, less darkness would have been more details, more information that are not necessary. There I could just focus on what really mattered to me, which was like a dead donkey uh, on a plateau at 2,000 meters or an old man walking in a field. And, and you wouldn't see the, the, the red or purple flowers that would make the picture really nice in colors, but you would see the man more. So yeah, that was definitely serendipity accident. You're a few months on from the expedition now. How do you look back on this journey? It's def definitely like we were saying in the beginning. It's, just, it's, it's, it's like if you dropped a mirror from the fifth floor of a building and the mirror was just breaking down. So like this is five months. So yeah, let's say five floors and that mirror is falling. And it's this slow motion shatter where like only a few pieces come out. I remember times with Josh. Uh, very well because we were so happy to meet each other and then I remember very well uh, crossing back from Morocco and, and falling in tears in front of my coffee and donuts and sandwich just thinking of Umar and what was he doing now how was he going through his day and 
how easy it was for me to get to Europe. It was just like 40 minutes on a ferry and I took the premium class because I knew that as a backpacker, if you have free cake, you'll make it worth it. And I just couldn't eat those donuts anymore. I was just looking at them and I started crying, thinking of him. Everything after that, everything after the crossing, I don't remember. Like the whole path through Andalusia, and I know I have some pictures and when I see them, I can see I went through beautiful landscapes, but it sort of, it sort of deletes itself. So, and I remember the first time I met Josh, I remember he told me, I do those things with my GoPro and it's not so much to make films, but it's just to have like some kind of like trace of where it is I went through because sometimes you just don't remember. And it, it really, it really is this. You, you remember a few important moments, but a lot of it disappear and it's, and it's unfair. It's unfair to Andalusia because it's a beautiful part of the world to be cycling through. So Ryan, thank you so much for sharing your insights. The trip sound like an incredible experience. You can read Ryan's piece, Crossing the Divide in Rulo 119, which is available now from our website, rulo.cc and selected outlets. After a short break, Dan Cavallari will be back with a segment about the Cask Elemento. I'm interrupting this podcast to remind all listeners to subscribe to Rula, the world's finest magazine of cycling and cycling culture. Our latest edition, out now, is Rula 119, The Soul Issue. Cycling, both as a sport and activity, is all about soul. As cyclists, we know that the bike is the most efficient way of getting us from A to B, but riding also makes our hearts sing. Cycling makes us feel. Rulo 119 features an exclusive interview with Remco Evenepoel, the world champion and one of the current generation of cycling superstars. He tells us why the Giro d'Italia makes him dream and reveals how he has tried to smooth some of his rougher edges. Also in Rulo 119, Victoria Pendleton, the multiple Olympic champion whose post-racing life has been a process of constant reinvention. The soul of bike racing. Cycling fandom in the 1980s and what it says about cycling fandom. Enzo Staiola, the former child actor who appeared in the seminal Italian movie Bicycle Thieves, a reflective journey across Morocco, Onguza bikes, Wabi Sabi and riding in Japan, and much, much more. Ruler is the world's finest magazine of cycling and cycling culture, and Ruler 119 is available now. To support our journalism and receive a magazine every six weeks, please subscribe. Go to ruler.cc, hit the subscribe button, and enter the code PODCAST15, PODCAST15, to get 15% off our regular subscription price. And now, back to the show. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Rulure Magazine Tech Podcast. I am your host, Dan Cavallari, and I am here in Colorado in the United States where it is finally, finally spring. <laughs> We're seeing trees blooming, the weather is warming, and it's time to ride outside. Thank goodness. It's been a long winter, and uh, one of the redeeming qualities of the spring is that racing begins, and we can watch all the good races. And if you're a tech fan, as I am, and love to look at gear, uh, those early season races are a great time to try to sort of spot new technology and new equipment. And if you've been paying attention, you might have spotted some new helmets in the Peloton uh, in the early season. uh, And we haven't gotten much information about them. Well, luckily today, we are talking about a new helmet that I have been fortunate to spot in the Peloton on uh, some Ineos heads, and uh, it's a cask helmet. We don't know anything about it. Let's talk about it. So on the line today, all the way from Italy, I have Luca Ciano, Director of Product, and Marco Galli, uh, Marketing Manager for Cask. Gentlemen, thank you for joining me. Hi, Dan. Hello, and thank you. 
Thank you for having us. Of course. So the helmet that uh, I spotted, you guys probably already know quite a lot about, I would imagine. <laughs> so let's talk about it today. So first of all, like, wh what is it called? Well, the, the name of the, I'm Marco, uh, the, the name uh, of the helmet that you spotted and I think many people spotted is uh, Elemento, mm -hmm. uh, Cask Elemento, and is, uh, yeah, is our latest uh, uh, helmet. Give us a sense of where cask came from. What, what's the history and why should people be looking at cask helmets in the first place? Cask, first of all, is, a, is an Italian company, something that uh, a lot of people still don't know. Uh, we are fairly young. The, the company was founded back in 2004, uh, so it's been uh, 19 years now. And uh, we are based uh, uh, in Bergamo, in the northern part of, uh, of the country. We are a 100% Italian company in the sense that, uh, uh, and this is, I think, a, a big uh, peculiarity, uh, especially in the cycling helmet industry, all our helmets are 100% made in Italy and actually made in the, in the areas nearby our offices. And, and this is really unique. And obviously this uh, is for us is a, is a big uh, added value because uh, obviously we can, we can count on the extremely high quality that the made in Italy can, can provide, but we can also leverage the advantage of having a, a very short uh, supply chain that offer us possibilities that otherwise would be completely unthinkable, let's say. Mm -hmm. So uh, we have been um, uh, involved in, in cycling and, and road cycling in particular for many, many years now, basically since the beginning. Our uh, founder and, and CEO, uh, his name is Angelo Gotti. He's a heavy, hardcore fan of, of cycling. He's a pretty good cyclist himself as well. Basically, uh, our history in, in road cycling and in the world tour is strongly connected uh, with uh, uh, Ineos Grenadier. We started mm -hmm. a partnership with them uh, uh, since day one, basically, uh, back when the, when the team was named uh, uh, Sky. Mm -hmm. And um, basically, we developed and uh, uh, studied uh, all our road cycling helmets together with them uh, over the past uh, 13 uh, years. And uh, go going back to, to Casca Elemento, Elemento is, uh, uh, we followed exactly the, the same path. So we got together with the, with the Ineos team and we started analyzing the, the areas where we could improve the, our, I would say, already quite good helmets. And basically, we, we came up with something that we are proud to say is really a, a game changer in the cycling helmet industry, definitely. So, so Cask is definitely a racing forward brand then. Uh, it was born from that. Definitely. Yeah, we have a strong focus on road racing. Obviously, we cover many other disciplines and other segments of the cycling world. We have uh, urban commuters helmet, we have mountain bike helmets, we have uh, also helmets that are targeted to, to less performance-driven uh, users, but uh, uh, definitely the, the core business uh, 
uh, has been and still is today high performance helmets, uh, top of the range helmet for road racing. That's a good uh, launching point here for the topic of the Elemento itself. It looks like a fairly similar cask shape. It's a, a shape we've seen on, on Ineos and Team Sky heads before, at least uh, at first glance, but it hides quite a lot of differences uh, within. So can you give me a, just a quick summary of what the design goals were for this helmet and what sets it apart? Yes, sure. This is Luca. And uh, just to drive you quickly through the process that we went through to develop this helmet, uh, as Marco said, it's always been for road uh, for road riding helmets, in particular, a very big partnership with Team Sky and now Ineos. At that time, it was just also to give you a, an idea of the timeline that it takes to make a helmet. It was December 19, and usually in December of every year, we have a big meeting at the winter training camp. Mm -hmm. For some years now, it has been held in Mallorca. We met there and we basically mm, did a, a check on what were at that time the available technologies, the available uh, even softwares, design tools that were just becoming available for us. But also we did a check on a few papers and scientific publications that could give us a heads up of what was going on, what were the new discoveries and how we could improve the existing line of our helmets. The big three questions that we always get asked by the team are, safer and this is not only because they go faster and faster the the average speed of races is becoming like really uh, higher than just a few years ago and speaking to the riders they they claim part of it is because of better technologies disc brakes better tires better bikes safer uh, equipment that give them the confidence to just go faster but also because it's becoming more and more important also to give the message of safety to viewers to you know passionate people that are along the road or watching tv so safety uh, incredibly i have to say because i've been in the in the sports since like 2005 and it was not a priority like most of the times safety was taken for granted yeah it, it's safe for sure, but how safe, we don't care. We want it lighter, faster, looking nicer. Now it's becoming priority number one. So they asked for a um, safer helmet. They asked for a more aerodynamic helmet, which is again, very important because the speed, the speed they carry now for most of every range is so high that they really need to take every possible advantage from the pure aerodynamic of a, of a helmet. It's becoming more important even the weight because at certain speed being aero is more important than being lightweight. Just to give you an example, last week I was at the Tour of the Alps and it was this stage with more than 3000 meters climb and they did 41 kilometers an hour average. Oh my gosh. So the guys just told me like, I could have used the TT helmet. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh my gosh. That, that made my legs hurt. <laughs> and then because of a lot of uh, scientific findings, mm -hmm. uh, thermal com uh, control, thermal comfort, ventilation, simplifying the, the term, is becoming very, uh, very important and a very interesting topics. There are many studies that has, that have, um, basically demonstrated or suggested at least 
that uh, there is a, a very strict connection between uh, temperature management and performance. Uh, one of them is uh, uh, basically an experimental study of thermal comfort and aerodynamic efficiency on racing bicycle helmets. And one of those uh, topics that has never really been explored until recently. So these were the three big questions. How to make it better than what we have with new materials, new design tools, and new technologies. So that's a huge combination of design goals. Um, but I want to start with the ventilation because the inside of the helmet actually looks a bit frightening to those who have big thick hair like I do and value ventilation in, in, in their helmet. Um, but the cask was actually quite purposeful with the design here. Um, while it looks like a solid shell of EPS, there's actually a lot going on inside. How does the ventilation work on the Elemento? And, and at what speeds do riders benefit from that design? As you mentioned, at a certain speed, it matters to be aero, but it also means that on the other side of that, at a certain speed, ventilation becomes very, very important. So how does the inside of the helmet work? Absolutely great question. And uh, speed and ventilation, they sometimes do not really work well together. So the, the helmet looks closed, as you said. It looks like a sphere. The goal there is that by using specific materials, in this case, we use carbon-reinforced thermoplastic, to do big portions of the outer shell where normally you would find the biggest ventilation holes. And we made so that the thickness of the shell is reduced by 10 times. So instead of being 25 millimeters, it's 2.5 millimeters, which even if the opening is reduced, the volume of air that is driven inside the helmet, so in direct contact with your hair or with your skin, is much larger. And that is what creates a, a better cooling and a nice feeling of air circulating inside the helmet. So it doesn't really matter how big the ventilations are, but it really matters how much air you can really push or uh, absorb inside the helmet. So by using this material, which is a very strong material, we could reduce the standard thickness of the helmet, so we could have smaller ventilation, which means better aerodynamics, but much larger volume of air inside the helmet. So it looks scary, but it works. And in combination also with uh, um, a new material that we used to replace most of the liner, which is normally a piece of fabric with uh, a piece of foam, we were able to create an um, exaggerated honeycomb three-dimensional shape that basically leaves the air free to just touch the skin and remove heat and, and humidity from the skin. New materials helped us in making new design, different design. So if I'm a consumer looking at this helmet going, oh no, I need something that will ventilate at low speeds, this won't work? Well, it will work, even at lower speeds? It will work. And that, that's due to the honeycomb structure or is that due to the, the movement of air across the head? Or I guess like it makes sense to me at the high speeds, right? The air is moving over your head. But when it's slower speeds, is it that honeycomb structure that allows the ventilation? Yes, that's, uh, that's exactly the point. So the, the very interesting fact about speed is that when you go very slow, you do not really benefit from uh, horizontal type of channeling, like the one that you see on Elemento, but you need a kind of convection of heat. So the heat needs to go up. 
Elementum does not have holes or ventilation on the top of the head. Therefore, the honeycomb allows the, the hot air from the skin to detach from the skin and basically rise above. And even the little wind that comes at low speed from the front will remove it easily. Just to give you um, an idea, a fun fact, uh, when we do test these helmets, we have a range of helmets that go from Vallegro, which is the climber helmet, to Utopia, which is the very fast helmet for sprinters or for uh, uh, classic spring classics. The slowest speed that they consider to be the slowest on a very steep climb is 20 kilometers an hour. So, yes. uh -huh. <laughs> it's like four times what we have on the same climb, but anyway. Yeah, yeah. And we tested up to 60 kilometers an hour. The, the most important, when we weight all the speed together to give an average result, the most important speed is uh, 50 meters an hour, which is roughly 15 meters per second. So it's very mm -hmm. fast. And it's basically yeah. the average speed that the Pro Tour, the World Tour race are driven today. Gotcha. The race season has been on for quite a while. And one of the things that I've noticed in all of these races is that we're seeing more and more aero helmets, even on climbers, even on guys that are not noted as sprinters or, you know, even on the stages where it's not necessarily flat all day. And so aerodynamics has really taken on a new precedence in helmet design. Now, with the Elemento, the, the helmet has fewer rough surfaces exposed to the wind. Luca, what does that mean and why does it matter? It means that um, we tried to reduce as much as possible the modifications of the surface, of the outer surface of the helmet. If we want to make a direct comparison, a sphere will be more aerodynamically efficient than a sphere with holes in it. So we try to reduce the external perforations or ventilations and we wanted to attract as much air as possible inside the helmet even through smaller ventilations and we were able to do it by using a very thin material which can basically uh, replace most of the traditional thickness of a helmet shell and allow for a much higher volume of air to be inside. So the external aerodynamics is better because there are less uh, changing into the direction of the flows, but the inside of the helmet uh, is able to basically get more air to keep your head cool. So this mm -hmm. was the, uh, the challenge here that we solved by using these new materials. Now, one of the, the things we've seen in the past on aero helmets is like a, a trip, a bump to sort of separate the airflow from the helmet at the back so that you get less drag. Does the Elemento have something like that? We use similar ideas also which uh, is referred to sometimes as the NACA duct it's something that comes from uh, aerospace or Formula 1 or uh, racing like very fast type of racing in general however lately we have been focusing more on the full um, structure which means helmet body bicycle clothing everything in movement rather than on the helmet itself and we have found out that sometimes you can have a very, very aerodynamically efficient helmet, which will lose a lot of performance when it's on the head of a rider. So sometimes you want to sacrifice the pure performance of the helmet alone and work on the, the combination of all the equipment plus the rider. So sometimes this very uh, aerodynamically efficient 
tricks. They are not as important as they could be on a rigid fixed structure like it could be a car or an airplane. So we didn't use it in the, in the Elemento, but we wanted to make sure that the shoulders of the riders and the back of the neck and the, the higher part of the, of the back were really working together with the shape of the helmet. That's interesting. So it's a whole body approach really to the helmet design and what's fastest on the dummy in the uh, wind tunnel is not necessarily what works best for the rider. Exactly. Now, one of the things that allowed you to make some of these drastic changes to the helmet is a new material, which I think you might have touched on already a little bit. It's called Fluid Carbon 12. Can you tell me what Fluid Carbon 12 is and how it differs from other carbon uh, thermoplastic composites? Sure. It's your typical uh, composite material, which is basically uh, carbon-reinforced polyamide, in this case. However, with two very big differences. One is related to safety, and the other one to the ability of inject very thin structures. Mm -hmm. So the carbon that you normally have injected in your polyamide can be very short. Um, it could be one or a couple of millimeters length. In this case, we have fibers that can be 10 times longer, even more. And that means that you will have a very, very high chance of them overlapping inside the injection, which will give them uh, a more carbon fiber-like structure. And that will help reducing the thickness. The other aspect, which is very, very important for a helmet, which is used in the outside in natural conditions, is that this polyamide that we decided to use is very little um, sensitive to conditioning. A lot of times uh, thermoplastic materials, they suffer in particular humidity. When it's wet, they lose performance. This one is very stable to humidity, heat, cold, and also you have to take in consideration that in every area of the world where you have to perform safety tests for certifications, you have different conditionings, which can be water, cold, hot, or even UV, uh, aging, etc. So uh, the big differences in the materials that we found, found that we could use is that we can have very thin layers with a, a very uh, strong structure and we can have structures that are not sensitive to changing in the climate, let's say rain, sun or whatever. So this is the big difference compared to a standard thermoplastic. And is that within the EPS foam or is that the shell outside? It's a kind of, we can call it a cage. Some of the cage is exposed in exactly where normally you would find perforations for ventilation. Some of the structure is embedded, is uh, co-molded together with EPS and that creates a very strong structure that will make the helmet stronger and better also into spreading around the energies in case of uh, impacts. So it's, it's more of a, a, a tailored design where you're putting it in places where it matters. Absolutely. Now, another big advancement for cask helmets is multipod. What exactly is that and how does that work? Yes, uh, multipod is, um, uh, is a, a new material as well. To put it very short, it's a 3D printed material. The technology of printing though is fairly new. It's called digital light synthesis. And once again, to make it very short, because myself too, I'm not a big expert of this, but basically digital light images are projected into a reservoir with a resin. And when the resin is hit by this light, it solidifies. 
and the, the, the very big properties of this type of um, making the material rather than the standard type of uh, 3D printing is not only the absolute freedom of design, which is unthinkable when you use standard traditional molding or even CNC machining. You can make things that are just not even thinkable with that uh, technologies. And even softwares that were able to design such structures did not exist until a couple of years ago. But this is the freedom of design, which allows you to make a structure which has multiple purposes. That's why the name we gave to him. So you have the purpose of redirecting, for example, uh, flows of air or to redirecting energies in many directions. The biggest uh, feature of this uh, material, which is synthesized by this digital light, is that um, it keeps a behavior which is called isotropic behavior. Isotropic means that it behaves exactly in the same way no matter what is the direction of the force that you apply to it. And if, if you think of a very sad event of uh, crashing on your bike, you will never know where the impact comes from. You will never know how you hit the ground or another cyclist or a bicycle or an obstacle. So you will be having forces that are generated in random directions. Multipod can actually do the exact same work regardless of the direction. Other materials cannot do it. Other technologies cannot do it because they are more, uh, they are working better in one or the other direction or on one or the other axis. So we're also speaking three-dimensional here, not only b-dimensional. And that's the um, the great goal that we try to achieve with this uh, with this multipod material. So there's there's two things I I want to clarify. One is the big advantage of 3D printing has been the ability to make more complex structures that were not otherwise. Uh, able to be created uh, and because it's an additive technology rather than a, a destructive one. So in other words, you're adding material during the, the, the build process uh, instead of taking it away like a CNC machine where you would, you know, be basically removing material to get the final shape you wanted. This allows you to create more complex structures and that's why we see all those honeycomb structures on saddles, for example. Now, this multipod material is interesting because it's a different take on 3D printing. Uh, it's, it's using the digital light synthesis, and that's basically hardening a resin in the shape that you want it to be in. Where does that get implemented into the helmet? So like, if I'm a customer looking at a helmet, can I see where the multipod material is? Absolutely. Part of the, the project was also that uh, because it has such a, a great impact on safety, we also have the obligation to show safety so we could have hidden it but we show it mm -hmm. one because it really does look different and it really does give a futuristic aspect to the helmet without being uncomfortable which is a, a huge challenge you know cask is known mainly for being very comfortable and we cannot lose it but also we wanted to show it because people can play with it you can touch it you can squeeze it and see exactly how it behaves and it does give you a very clear idea of what it will do in case of an impact just by playing with it, which is also cool. And we can say it, it, uh, it helps creating better education on what helmets should do and what helmets actually do nowadays. Mm -hmm. And that's an interesting concept, too, because I think a lot of the ways that uh, safety features have been implemented into helmets before 
uh, have, like you said, been sort of on the X, Y axis, right? You're getting an impact this way, you know, vertically, or you're getting one horizontally. And then we started talking about rotational impacts, which is great, but we, we still don't know which side the force is going to come from and what kind of force you're going to hit. So this seems to be addressing the, the variability of impacts that a helmet can take. Now, all of that is is uh, a moot point if the helmet just falls off your head and you guys have uh, an interesting chin strap to to keep it on people's heads. The Pro Tour chin strap. Tell me a little bit about that. Why is the buckle relocated to the side where traditionally it's underneath the chin? What was the goal there? This is the, the easiest question. And it comes from, um, you know, the story of marginal gain mm-hmm. that uh, Team Sky made very big and they they are very proud of it and we have always been part of it so they always ask can it be safer can it be faster can it be lighter and still be safer and the crazy thing with them is that even if the answer is yes but only one and a half grams lighter mm-hmm. they are oh that's great let's go that's great so <laughs> so the whole story around the uh, war tour uh, chin strap is that um it's two grams lighter. Oh, that's easy. <laughs> <laughs> yep. So the buckle relocation is just is just the a side is effect just of the result of. So when you make a chin strap, the uh, the notified bodies, the laboratories that do test also uh, the, the chin strap connection, the ability of the chin strap to retain the helmet on your head in case of impacts or just pulling very hard pulling forces, etc., is that. Uh, uh, they, they perform this test and sometimes the geometry of a chin strap can slightly change because of the material you use because mm-hmm. some material maybe can they can have a different elongation or they slide into the buckle so that design of the chin strap is because we had to make it as safe as a standard one but two grams lighter gotcha and that will give the the user the real racing experience they have uh-huh. the same chin strap that the racers have that that gives new definition to the the term weight weenie. That's very oh, yes. incredible. Oh, yes. <laughs> one one final touch. We we just, we're going to wrap it up here in just a moment. We're just about out of time. But one thing I've noticed on the helmet that I I can't recall seeing. I mean, it doesn't mean that it hasn't been implemented before. But I've never seen a merino wool pad used in helmets before. Why did you choose to offer this? And what does it do that other pads didn't do before? It's um, merino. It's actually landed into cycling helmets thanks to our experience in other fields, in particular mm-hmm. horse riding helmets and ski helmets. And basically, it offers excellent insulation. It does not irritate the skin. It transports humidity, so it's a kind of a quick dry. Uh, material it is anti-static it is neutral to odors so it doesn't alter the odor of the of the helmet it is very lightweight and it does not lose its shape over time and moreover it's a completely natural and sustainable product which nowadays is something that we try to also uh, address uh, as much as we can it has been used by the Team Sky and Arenas since many years ago when we found out it was so good also in heat management rather than just keeping you warm in cold uh, environments. And it's a great upgrade for the thermal comfort and for comfort in general. And uh, because once again, we wanted this helmet to be exactly like the one that the racers use, we decided to put it in. It, it Basically the only, uh, downside of it is, is that it's very challenging in terms of costs. Does it manage sweat any differently than other synthetics? I mean, you know, one of the big 
the claims we often get is that it, it'll move sweat better than, and I always have it dripping down my face in, in the end. <laughs> I have to say that there are some synthetic materials that do very well at uh, drying very quickly, like polypropylene, for example. Mm -hmm. However, this is more natural and there are um, many aspects of having natural fibers in direct contact with your skin that a lot of people prefer to synthetic materials. Mm -hmm. Is this the first uh, helmet cask is made that for, for consumers that features the merino pads? No. We have uh, another helmet which is called Wasabi and it's a, a very interesting helmet, like a four-season helmet which is mainly intended for cold climate, for winter using, that already offers uh, a merino uh, liner and all of our ski helmets and horse riding helmets, they all feature merino liners. It's interesting to me that all of this new technology can be packed into a shape and a look that we feel like we've seen before. It's it's almost maintaining the aesthetic of cycling, but packing in all the new technology. And I think that to me is the biggest takeaway here is that, you know, as we advance in cycling, as speeds get higher, it is possible to, to address the higher speeds and the higher impact loads and all of the different ways your head can hit the ground or, or, or an object uh, and still pack it into a package that looks something familiar and, and attractive um, and also one that works better, one that uh, allows better ventilation and addresses those big three design goals that you mentioned earlier. You know, in the past, we, you would have to sacrifice one of those to get the, the other two. And that's no longer the case. And I think that uh, the Elemento seems to be a testament to that uh, in a very big way. So I would encourage listeners to check it out uh, on Casco's website, on social media. And of course, if you have questions about the, the Elemento or anything in this podcast, please do feel free to reach out to me. You can reach me at SlowGuyFastRide on Twitter or at SlowGuyOnTheFastRide on Instagram. And of course, you can reach out to at RulerMagazine on all of the social media channels. Uh, and if you want to reach out directly to Cask, you can do that. Uh, probably the easiest way is via their website, which is gentlemen, uh, cask dot com. Dot com. Yeah. <laughs> Very simple. Very simple. And, uh, on social media, where can people find Cask? Our tag on Instagram is uh, cask underscore uh, sport. Great. So you can reach out there to Marco and Luca. Thank you so much for joining me today to explain uh, the Elemento and all the, the magic that resides within. I very much enjoyed it. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. And for those of you listening, thank you for listening. And I hope you'll join us on the next episode of the Ruler Magazine Tech Podcast. You have been listening to Ruler Conversations. Ruler Conversations is made by the editorial staff of Ruler Magazine. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Ruler and on Instagram at Rouleau Magazine, or visit our website at Rouleau.cc. This edition of Rouleau Conversations was produced by Joseph Perry of Content is Queen. <laughs>